Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so that you can develop products that your customers love. And this episode is sponsored by the RPM experience. That's the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. This is the fastest way for product VPs to help their product managers and everyone else contributing to products to increase performance. It's not just training. It's an experience. Go to productmasterynow.com RPM to see how it can help you as well. Now, is your organization innovative? You know, stop and think about that for a minute. Is innovation part of the culture and an aspect of the reputation? Or is innovation something that's just talked about, but you know real action isn't taking place? Something that we might call, it has been called, innovation theater. If so, today we are talking about changing that and how organizations can be more innovative and the action leaders need to take to make that happen. To help us with that, joining us is Tendai Vicky. He is a returning guest. He joined us back in episode 308. And Tendai is an author and innovation consultant. He holds a PhD in psychology and an MBA degree. He's also an associate partner at Strategizer, who has very valuable tools that I have loved using and recommend others. As part of his role at Strategizer, he helps large organizations innovate for the future while managing their core business, which is a key aspect of what I want to explore today with this great expert. If you want a detailed written summary of anything that we talk about, any of the insights that Tendai shares with us, we do take detailed notes for you. You'll find that at productmasterynow.com slash 389. That also includes a one-page action guide to help you put into action immediately key takeaways that will come up. Tendai, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Chad. It's a real pleasure to be back chatting with you again. Oh, it was a delight last time. So glad we can be talking again. I know you've been busy helping companies now that things have opened up a little bit and getting very involved, helping us be better innovators. So let's talk about that. So you, you use this phrase, innovate for the future. What does that look like? How do you help companies innovate for the future? Yeah, no, it's a very interesting philosophical challenge that you always have, right? And I tend to think of organizational leadership as stewardship, which means that not only are you helping the company survive today and do all the things it has to do from a financial obligation, legal obligation, customer obligation standpoint to survive or not even survive, like thrive right now, like be successful right now and do well right now. So that's like half the job. The other half is to make sure that you set the company up to survive into the future or to thrive into the future. And so the interesting philosophical challenge is that you have to align with leadership that Surviving into the future and the things that help you survive into the future are only partly the things you're doing today. A large share of what's going to help you survive into the future is coming up with new things that are future, right? And so that's an interesting responsibility to have because sometimes like, yeah, no, I'm setting up the company for the future. Can't you see how well I've restructured the company or how well I've optimized the current portfolio of products, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, yes, that's actually part of the job. But another part of the job is making sure that some of the stuff you know, what got you here won't get you there, as, you know, Marshall Goldsmith likes to say. And so you do need to start exploring a little bit of newer, cutting-edge technologies, products, business models, value propositions that will then help your organization navigate into the future. I want to explore this challenge a little bit more, right? Because the we all get the thriving now, setting up the organization to be successful now and executing what is in front of us. It tends to be a little bit less of an urgent need to set up to thrive for the future because we're not seeing those rewards yet. It's kind of like exercising. I was actually doing a really good job when we were closed down more in the world exercising. And for some reason, I have not been getting back to that, maybe because I'm not seeing as many results as I I wanted to right for the future. Yes. That's a challenge. So so let's talk about how 
you know, what's going on there? How do you really help transform the organization to be able to do both? The first step of this is philosophy, which mm-hmm. is why it's so hard. Like the first, the first step is just philosophical alignment, which is a shared belief that humanity is a mixture of daily bread and planting for next season. Great. It is, it is, it is just the way that life is lived. It is a mixture of spending half your salary and investing half of it in your pen, 401k or your pensions. It is the mixture of waking up in the morning, getting drawn into the tasks of the day and forgetting to take a walk. It's not good for the future of your capability to get up in the morning and get drawn into tasks. It's almost like the thing that you're prioritizing, you'll be unable to do if you don't do the other thing that is producing less results. And so this is a, it's a human challenge. I often say we don't get sayings unless they're necessary. So make hay while the sun shines is a necessary thing to say because it's hard to make hay while the sun is shining. When the sun is shining, you want to go to the beach and surf. And so you don't want to be making hay. But actually, we have to keep reminding ourselves that. And so once a leader aligns to that philosophy first, then we can move on to the conversation of how. But before that, before there's a philosophical buy-in, it's just as if people are being dragged, kicking and screaming to this trough that they don't want to drink from. And part of how they're being dragged there is the threat of disruption. Oh, do you see what happened to Blockbuster? Oh, do you see what happened to Nokia? Oh, do you see what happened to BlackBerry? So people are being dragged to this trough because of the fear. But sometimes fear doesn't motivate behavior as much as actual philosophical buy-in. And so that's really what I, where I try to get to first. Because if we don't get to that first, then it's hard to have the conversations going forward. A while ago, we had a guest from the Center for Creative Leadership. And they were doing research on how do you lead innovation and what's different with that, right? And one thing they discovered was the number of CEOs that say innovation is important to them, right? So, so this factor of you know recognizing that we need to be doing, and that number was really high in their research. So it was about 98%. And then they talked to the same CEOs, well, how do you feel about your programs that are in place now? Are you being successful as innovators? And that number, I think, was like 14%. <laughs> And so they round off a little bit and they talk about this 85% gap, right? Which is saying it's important, but we're actually not preparing for the future, right? We're not, I like your farming analogy. We're not sowing now so that we can reap later, right? So, so let's say that we generally realize that this is an issue. How do we actually overcome that? What do we start putting into place to say we're going to be innovating for the future? So let's say we agree, right? 98% we've aligned now philosophically, we need to start working in the business and planning for the future. Okay, great. The next piece of philosophical alignment is this embracing of something that's kind of hidden inside our organizations, which is that first we shape the tools and then the tools shape us. And so every organization has artifacts, tools, and processes that it uses to run itself. But it's become business as usual that it's taken for granted and nobody challenges the philosophy that underlies the artifact tools or process. And so the bigger challenge of why large organizations really struggle with innovation is because they take the processes they use for managing their core business and apply them one to drive innovation. And the only reason that happened is because that's what they have to hand. And so that's what I mean by saying 
first we shape the tools and then the tools shape us. And so yeah. the tools shape us in the sense that you can have an idea competition because maybe you were talking to bright idea and they convict, they convinced you that what you need is people to submit ideas. And then you vote on those ideas and then you select a winner of those ideas. Now, once you have a winner, what do you do with that winner? Well, guess what you've won, Chad? The chance to write a 35-page business case, <laughs> right? And so we are aspiring for this thing, for this goal. And then we're picking up, we're picking up harvesting tools for planting, if we like want to extend the farm analogy, right? And so we have to really, the next philosophical alignment is that these two worlds need different management tools, techniques, processes, philosophy. One is for searching and one is for executing. And the core business is where we use execution tools and innovation is where we use searching tools, design tools, agile tools, right? And so, so, so that's the first philosophy. And then we know when we map that dis distinction between exploring and exploiting, like a pin drops, you can really see like, ah, okay. Now we can then have a conversation to say, okay, well, what exactly are those tools and how does that work? And then we can dive deeper into that, into that, in, into that question. So two points came up for me as you're talking about that. One, you know, the, the do the tools first, and then the tools will help shape us. And anyone that has been through, at least the way I think about this tonight, is anyone that has been through some kind of large enterprise system deployment, like a new customer relationship management system or an ERP system or a new any of these things. You know, on one hand, employees kind of first look at that like, okay, we're getting this new information system, not a big deal. That always imposes new processes. That's why they're so hard for organizations to accept and why their success rate tends to be pretty low. Because we're actually changing how people work by deploying that tool, right? Exactly. And that's what I hear you kind of saying like, hey, th this is a good strategy to actually move people towards innovation. That if we can give them the tools to help that get done, it kind of forces yes. the behavior we want at the end. Yeah, exactly. And Buckminster Fuller said the same thing, right? The, the famous ar ar architect. Rather than argue with people about their behavior, why don't you just give them a tool that is an expression of the behaviors you want them to show? And by using the tool, they get to embody the process. There's nothing as, there's nothing as powerful as the embodiment, the experience of a process in shaping people's minds. Right. Right. Because we can say, because there's always a lot of debate around, you know, around innovation circles where it's like, well, we don't have the right mindset in this organization. What we need to do is change mindsets. It's like, well, you can try. And a lot of what we say is hard to disagree with. It's hard to disagree with the notion that before you test an idea with customers, maybe you shouldn't build it. Hmm. Right? It's like, it's hard to disagree with that. It's like, yeah, of course. Like, I really want to know what they need before I make the thing. Like, it's just kind of logical. Now I've had a conversation with you. I get back to my desk and I don't have any tools to do that with. All I have is the business plan and the execution roadmap or whatever it is we used to build products. My mind has changed, but I can't manifest it in any way. Right. It's actually better to do it the other way around, which is give the tools that allow people to manifest the right behaviors. And you'll see the expression of mindset and the shifts happen over time. Yeah. And we need to help prepare and lead people down that path. And so having the right tools in place can help with that. Yeah. The other thing that came up for me, you, you talked about, okay, we're, we're going to do like the, this idea-a-thon, you know, and have people submit ideas and have some kind of process to have people vote and all this. And like, woohoo, now do the business case for us, right? Which is using a 
a tool from our existing management approach. How do we thrive today? This is what we're used to. And this is where I see so much of the tension come into play of what we're talking about. You know, how do we innovate while we execute on operations today? Because that 35 business, 35 page business case expects us to have some certainty about the future. This is a new idea to us that we're excited about. And how can we have certainty about this new thing that we're just starting to consider? It's a, it's, that is the most fascinating challenge. And I have loads of stories to tell you. So I'll, I'll just pick one. Oh, please. There was a, I was working with this one organization that I won't name. And they, would, they were like, okay, you want to help us design how we make investment decisions on new projects. And so, I, so they're like, yeah, come and watch us for a while. So I set in on the process and you'd have all these like R&D scientists coming up with this, all of these great inventions. Then they have to fill in this long business case and then they'd come to this session and the questioning was brutal. Like it was harsh. And like a really like, mean Shark Tank. Like, like, a, like, a, like Shark Tank is actually okay because Shark Tank asks... <laughs> Ask customer-based questions like, you know, have you sold anything yet? Have customers said they want it? Do you have a channel? Whatever. They were just like, how do you know this? It was really brutal, right? And they were convicted that the brutality of the questioning is what extracted the truth. And I remember even one of them joking that all beatings will continue until attitudes change or something like that. It was just like a joke that was kind of like rolling around, right? About how brutal that the, the, the those sessions are. I had to convince them that there's no truth to be found. Like you can be as brutal as you want, but they don't know the answers to the questions. So whatever they tell you, no matter how hard the questioning is, what you really need to do is to create a pre-preceding process where people go and gather the evidence they need to ask your question. Right? You need to create a preceding process where people can gather the evidence. Who's the customer? Do they have a need? How much are they willing to pay? What is the actual size of the market? Et cetera, et cetera. Once they gather that data and they bring that data, now you're having a conversation with actual reality. And now the brutal questioning can produce truth. Right? But here's the rubber. This is where now the rubber meets the road when it comes to innovation. How much are you willing to pay for that initial process? Because our conversations are, I'll only give you money when you promise me a return. Uh-huh. But in this context, I'm giving you money. You're promising me answers to my questions. But you're not promising me what those answers are going to be. Right? You're not promising me that you're going to confirm or disconfirm that there's a value to be created there. You're going to come back and go, okay, there's no value. We did the research. Or there's value. Let's keep on going. So how much are you willing to invest in that and I want your answer on that. You know, you know, the way I think about this is we're essentially placing bets, right? So say in this example, if this organization used their R&D scientists to come up with possible new product concepts, and, you know, say, say there's 10 out there, and they're grilling them on answers they can't possibly know yet because they haven't engaged customers. We need to do that work. And out of those 10, maybe we say we engage customers, we're placing bets to see which ones work. Some smaller percentage, we decide, oh, there, there seems to be some value here. Customers are resonating w- with what we're coming up with. And, you know, I don't know what that is, like 10, 20%, right? Whatever we move forward right. with. That's the idea here is we, we need to place some bets. We got to put some money into this. What is that answer then to how much are we willing to invest to f- find that out? Exactly. So then what we do, I think that's a really powerful question. So... So it depends on the industry, but there are a couple of overarching principles. Okay. So for example, 
There's principles such as we don't want to build anything tangible, physical before we know exactly what the customer needs and wants. So we need to explore customers and their needs. So maybe we can call that like, I don't know, an innovation stage or phase or important question. And then once we know that, we don't want to build the actual expensive thing to build before we take prototypes and really see whether the value proposition resonates. We don't want to start going into manufacturing before we get the price point at which customers are willing to pay, maybe get some early commitments from customers, maybe a deposit. So you can lay out the sequence. They think we don't want to do this before this. We won't do this before we know this. We won't do this before we know that. Okay, so once we lay that out, that becomes, if you want to call it our innovation roadmap, our innovation journey. And then we say, okay, now in your industry, how much do you think a team would need to get you answers to this question? Okay, if they give positive answers to those questions, what is the next incremental level of investment you'd give them to build on that and give you the next level of questions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then we end up like mapping out the, the, this framework with them. It takes like two to three days of just like collaboratively building that together. And then you can start testing it in the organization to see if that resonates. So it's this combination of making bets plus metered funding or incremental funding, as we call it, right? Interspersed with evidence. That's really what you're trying to build. And now you have a different system for managing innovation than you do for managing your core business. And now you've got this dual system that like, you know, working in your organization. Right. Now the dual system is in place. You have the tools and you have money allocated for that. This helps answer the question too, well, how much should we budget for innovation? Well, if we put this kind of pipeline together, we lay out that journey at each stage, what the funding is needed, how many projects we're going to feed into the first stage, how many can we expect to continue on, we can come up with that budget that we're now spending. Okay, so this, this is really powerful and exciting to think about this sort of approach. I find people also, when we're new to this, we get stuck at specific stages, like that very first stage that you talked about, like we don't want to build before we talk to the customer, okay? And so I've had these conversations, right? Either in my executive graduate courses, you know, with students or helping with companies. And the first thing they go to is, oh, well, I'll put together a prototype of what we're thinking about. It's like, no, that sounds like we're building something, right? We're not building the real product yet, but you're still building something. How do we accomplish that first part, really lightweight, where we're not building anything, but we're trying to just pursue, is this a product concept that even has any merit? Yeah. So for that, you need, and I'm always talking philosophy because I always think like principles are really important before we get to tactics. So for that, you first need a principle, which is when to compete against luck, which is a Clayton Christensen principle. To compete against luck, you need to have a deep understanding of customers, their context, jobs to be done, things they're trying to accomplish, things that get in the way Right. Like the more you know that, the better innovator you become. And taking a prototype into those first conversations hurts that because what you've already done is solutionized, placed a solution in front of the customer. Now you're getting feedback on a solution. And so you will learn whether your solution resonates, but it won't help you get a deep, empathic understanding of the customer. And so that's the first alignment we need to have. So if we agree that, okay, we need to get empathy first, then we can park the prototype. But within that same discovery phase, if you want to call it that, you can have an initial series of experiments where you get empathy, and then you use that empathy to design your first prototype. And you go back to double check whether what you heard was correct. Like it doesn't have to be like 
now that we spoke to customers, let's go back to the board and get more money to build prototypes. Like it can be within that same kind of early stage, early testing, right? Because what we want is teams to go fast. We don't want them checking in with leadership for every $2,000. We want to give them sufficient investment that they can kind of move like a startup would and do what they need to do to get early early evidence that they're on track. Okay. Very important, right? Understanding that problem first. And the, the prototypes do help our, our prospects or prospective customers here give us maybe more valuable feedback at the right time, right? That they can also send them down a path. And if we're not, we need to understand the problem first and explore that with them. Maybe we'll go back to philosophy here. When do you, what do you do when you run into that leader in the organization? They just don't think this way. And maybe their approach has been, well, we'll find out when we launch the product, the, the market will tell us if we were right or not. We're starting at a different place within that conversation. I'm sure you ran into this all the time. So there's one question I, I ask that helps sometimes, which is, let's do this quick exercise. Can you write down like the last four projects that you thought were going to be really successful and you invested money in them and they just didn't work out? Like they were really frustrating the way they like cost you and didn't bring returns. And that's like laying down a therapy chair in front of them. Like they're just like, yeah, man. And two years ago, we launched this digital platform. We thought it was going to be cool. We spent $2 million on it. And then like nothing happened with it. And then you're like, okay, well, wouldn't you have wanted to know that before you spent the $2 million? So is this a way to like have the conversation? But still, like in, in those conversations, it's often touch and go. Like the leader can get it or they can still be very resistant. And then, yeah, sometimes I just like, you got to walk away from those. And Yeah, I came across one example, and this is probably useful for product people to just be aware that this can happen, that the compensation system bonus the executive based on the number of products that got to market. And so there was an incentive not, there. Not on, how they, not on how they performed. Exactly. So that was a separate metric. And so, so there was an incentive to get products to market in a certain time frame, which might lead us to choosing products that we could get to market, not necessarily the ones we should get to market, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. problematic. No, that's definitely problematic. Yeah. Okay. There's so many good insights. I hope people go back and, and re-listen to the, just the great wealth of information you've been sharing on how we can structure an innovation engine in parallel with our execution engine for existing operations to help us not just succeed now, but prepare for success in the future as well. I do want to share the sponsor that's making this possible. And I mentioned earlier that the RPM experience, Rapid Product Mastery Experience, is a way to help you, in some sense, kind of go slow now with your team so you can really go fast later. So if you're trying to go fast later, that's really important. And I have a, a quote to share. This is from the product development program manager at Panasonic <clears throat> that did an RPM experience. He said, we were expanding our product team and looking to improve our work as well. We had a product process in place, but our business had changed since it was created. We needed to renew our customer focus, improve how we create business cases, add agility, and decrease our time to market. We used the RPM experience to get everyone on the same page and provide a foundation for working smarter and faster. It was unlike anything we had tried before, not just training. It's an experience that creates buy-in and ownership of the change we needed to make certainly helped that organization and think about how to get everyone working together moving forward and they so they could move faster later. And that's at productmasterynow.com slash RPM if you want more information. Tendai, thank you for taking us through this. As our listeners know, we love innovation quotes around here. What do you have for us and what does that mean to you? Okay, so my favorite innovation quote is a quote from John Gertner, 
who wrote the book, The Idea Factory, which is a historical telling of Bell Labs and sort of the great American sort of innovation age around the Bell Labs. And he says in that quote, describing how Bell Labs did their work, that almost by definition, that's the quote, almost by definition, a single person or even a single group could not alone create an innovation, right? The task is too variegated and and involved. And for me, it's one of my favorite quotes because it is almost like the philosophical basis of Pirates in the Navy, which is my other book, which is this idea that even as we create distinctive processes for driving innovation, there should always be a bridge between the innovators and the core business. Because ultimately, on the path to get to market, legal and compliance will have to look at it. HR will have to help you build a team. Right, Sales and marketing will have to maybe help you put it out to market. Sales directors will have to be involved. And so while we're trying to build a distinct process, we're trying to make sure that it's housed in a collaborative environment between explore and exploit within the same business. Excellent. Thanks for sharing the quote. The philosophy is so important, right? This notion of lone wolf innovators just doesn't exist. It's, you know, that first idea you have is not going to be the idea that you end up taking to market and you need to share it with others and get feedback and evolve it together and make it better. This thing that Pixar calls plussing, right? Just keep plussing the idea until making it better all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for sharing that quote with us. How can people find out more about the work you're doing, resources you have available, some of those tools that we alluded to along the way? So you can find out more about me at tendaiviki.com. That's my personal website. But I also work for Strategizer where I'm associate partner. So Strategizer is the company founded by Alex Osterwalder, the inventor of the business model canvas. And you can find us at strategizer.com. Strategizer is spelled with a Z, <laughs> E-R at the end. So strategizer.com. I will make sure both links are in the show notes to make that easy to get to. And really appreciate all the insights, your great experience, and sharing some of that with us on how we can set up this dual operating system, right? How do we execute well now? And as product leaders, how can we contribute to creating that innovation engine and keeping that running? Mm -hmm. Tendai, thank you so much. Thank you, Chad. Much appreciated. And listeners, once again, if you want the written notes of everything we discussed in that one-page action guide, just go to productmasterynow.com slash 389. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.